Good morning, Grace. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 33 and spill into Exodus 34. For a moment, we'll also be in Exodus 3 if you uh, want to turn there as well. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. And you have given us your spirit who dwells in us individually and collectively as a church body. Thank you for your word that you've revealed yourself. You have not left us in the dark to scramble to try to figure out what you're like, but you've made it very clear. And we love what we see in your word and what it says about you because you are merciful and you are gracious to sinners and rebels like us. It's who you are. You love sinners and that's who we are. May we bask once again this morning as we look at your word in the gospel and leave here so full of joy that you would forgive people like us because of your son. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who said theology isn't practical? I want to know who said theology isn't practical because my belief in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God was very practical for me last week as I flew to Minnesota to attend the Desiring God Pastors Conference. My theology, my belief that the triune God governs everything that happens in this world was very practical to me when the stewardess said, we can't take off yet because we're imbalanced. There's too much weight in the front of the plane. Would anybody mind going to the back? And immediately, two people jumped up out of their seats. They didn't even ask any questions, and thank God they weren't skinny. They moved their way to the back of the plane. So we started taking off, still at an incline, and I look up, and a portion of the interior of the plane, not sure what it was, above the windows, near the lights, had fallen down. A piece about this big, and these two guys are trying to hold it up. The stewardess comes. She's trying to hang on because we're still at an incline. And my belief in the sovereignty of God sustained me because I thought, okay, she just said 10 minutes ago that we're not balanced properly. Now the plane is falling apart. God, you're sovereign. If you want this plane to go down, it's going down. And if you want to keep it up, you can keep it up. And then we hit some very hard turbulence, some of the worst turbulence that I've ever experienced in my life. And as we're hitting this turbulence and moving all over the place, the stewardess is there speaking to all of us and saying, in a moment, I'll be bringing drinks around for everyone. Now, she either believed in the sovereignty of God or maybe she's been around the block. It was my belief in the sovereignty of God that sustained me and just caused me to relax and say, if this plane is going down, this plane is going down. Now, I struggled when we landed and I had a very 
small connection time to catch my other plane. And as we were delayed on the runway, my belief in the sovereignty of God went out the window. <laughs> and I began to stress, thinking, I've got to make this connection. I've got to make this connection. Finally get off the plane. I'm running through the airport, running on those, you know, those moving walkways. I'm running on that. And some lady yells at me, I like your style. And I'm just running... And as I'm about to get off one of these, I hear this noise and turn back. And while I was running, I did not know that my backpack was slowly opening. So now things have fallen out on the moving walkway. And I'm trying to go backwards and collect my things. I eventually make it to my gate and I catch my flight. Theology is very practical. Sometimes we embrace it and believe it. And sometimes we struggle. Knowing God, the doctrine of God, can be very beneficial to you. I briefly mentioned two weeks ago in a sermon that God's name is not Jehovah. His nickname is not Jehovah. Even though we have called him that for years, I have a feeling that God would like to be called by his name, which is Yahweh, and not some name that we have given him. Now, I had a lot of conversations with people after that sermon two weeks ago, so I thought we would spend this week looking at the name of God and clearing up a 500-plus-year historical misunderstanding. Today, I want to tell you why Jehovah is not God's name and explain to you how we started calling him that. So, let's go back into the Old Testament And let's do some more good theology. God revealed his name to Moses just before Moses made his way back to Egypt to lead the Israelites out of slavery to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 3 in verse 13. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Today we're going to talk about the name Yahweh. Our big idea is this. Good theology should catapult you to worship. Good theology should catapult you to worship God. That's why we're doing this series, so that you can understand the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as He has revealed Himself in Scripture, and then let that truth catapult you to worship Him. Good theology should lead you to worship. Now, we saw two weeks ago that good theology doesn't just happen, that it takes work, that it takes study. And the place where we must put and spend our energies is in knowing God himself by looking at his word because it is in the Bible that God has revealed himself. Yes, God has revealed himself through creation. 
But to know the triune God intimately, we must go to him, to his word, to learn about him. And that is precisely what Moses does in our passage today. So let's get our contextual bearings here so that we can truly grasp the force of this passage. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses and Joshua were on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days. And and Israel got restless down in the camp below. They said, it's been 40 days I think Moses is dead. He's not coming back. And so in Exodus 32, the nation asked Aaron to make them a god that they could worship that would take them into the promised land. So Aaron said, bring me all of your gold jewelry. Bring me all of your bling, if you will. And then Aaron fashioned a cow out of wood, and he melted down the gold, and he poured it over the wooden cow that he had made. Now, in the ancient Near East... This was a typical God that people would worship. They worshiped cows. And so he's doing what everyone else is doing in the culture there. He melts down the gold, covers the wooden cow, and now they have this golden calf to worship. And then the Lord tells Moses, who's on Mount Sinai, to go down to the camp because the people have already broken covenant with Yahweh their God. Moses enters the camp. He see, enters the, the camp. He sees the golden calf. He sees the people dancing. He throws down his two copies of the Ten Commandments. And then Moses took the golden calf. He burned it up, ground it down to powder, threw it into water, and he made everyone drink it. And then Moses confronted Aaron. And Aaron backpedaled and blamed the Israelites. You see, Aaron is just like all of us. When we get caught in our sin, we revert to doing what our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. And we start making excuses and blaming others. Aaron told Moses, they gave me their gold. I threw it into the fire and voila, out popped this thing. That's what the Hebrew says. They gave me the gold, I threw it in the fire and this thing jumped out. Really, Aaron? Failed to mention how that wood shop class in high school really paid off as you whittled that cow with that piece of wood. So we have the people of God here who had just been delivered out of the clutch of Pharaoh. They were at Mount Sinai when when thunder and lightning and smoke and fire enveloped Mount Sinai. They heard God speak the Ten Commandments to them. They told Moses, you hear from God and you speak to us. We don't want to hear his voice anymore because we're scared to death. They, They heard and they had seen all of these things and now they have turned away from him because Moses took too long on top of the mountain. Now they're worshiping a golden calf. Here's where they went wrong. They forgot how all of their theology, everything that they knew about Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, should have prompted them to worship. Good theology should catapult you to worship. What you know of God should propel you forward to worship him. Moses knew this. He knew God. And his theology catapulted him into prayer so that he could intercede for the nation that had just turned away from the Lord. So look at Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain." No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This passage is extremely important to us because we have the Lord proclaiming his name, Yahweh. We have the Lord actually describing himself, listing some of his attributes here, and he names himself. Only God can do that. He's the only one that gets to pick his name. Now, notice in these verses you have LORD in all capital letters. When you see this in English, it's the translators telling you that this is the Hebrew Yahweh, God's covenant name. When you see LORD in the Old Testament in all capital letters, the English translators are letting you know this is God's covenant name, Yahweh. When you see LORD, and it's not in all capitals, when it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d, It's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means my Lord or my master. And so we see both of these come together in Psalm 8.1 where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What the psalmist is saying here is, O Yahweh, our master, our Lord, how majestic is your name, Yahweh, in all the earth. Now what does the name Yahweh mean? Yahweh means I am. It means that God exists dependent upon nothing or no one excepting his own will. Yahweh is the self-existent one. He is not bound by time. He is sovereignly independent of all creation and his presence guarantees the fulfillment of the covenant that he makes with his people. But understand this grace. I'm not making a big deal out of God's name for no reason. In the ancient Near East, names represented a person's character. 
It wasn't just a way that people talked to distinguish one person from another. Names expressed a person's essence or character, their reputation. Their name meant their whole person, everything about them. Yahweh is not just something that God would have scribbled on one of those Hello, My Name Is stickers, you know, that you wear at like conventions and reunions. This is who he is. He is, I am. This is what Jesus is getting at when you see him in the gospel saying, like John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. What he was saying is, not I was, but before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying that I am Yahweh. I am the one in the Old Testament who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and revealed my name to him. Names represent a person's character. And what does the Lord say to Moses about himself as he passes by him? Look again at Exodus 34, verse 5. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Moses heard God's name. He heard about his character and some of his attributes. And what does Moses do? He got down on his face. He bowed down to the ground and he worshiped. Good theology should catapult you to worship. So I like to think of it this way. Moses took another grace seminary class in that cleft of the rock on that mountain, and he came away worshiping. That's what theology is supposed to do. It's to cause you to worship. Remember the context They just made a covenant with Yahweh. And they abandoned that and they're worshiping a golden calf. That according to Aaron just mysteriously jumped out of the fire. What does Deuteronomy 9 say? God told Moses, I'm so angry with the Israelites and I'm so angry with Aaron that I want to kill him. But Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 9 that he interceded for the nation and asked God to have mercy on him. What does Yahweh say to Moses now? After the nation has blown it, after they have turned away, God shows up to Moses as he intercedes and he says, I am. I am that I am and I am merciful, I am gracious, I am slow to anger, I abound in steadfast love, I abound in faithfulness, I keep steadfast love, hesed, if you remember from the book of Ruth, For thousands, I forgive iniquity, I forgive transgression, I forgive sin, but I will not clear the guilty. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. When God says that he will visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, he does not mean that kids will be judged or punished for what their parents did. Amen, parents? What he means is that what a parent does can affect their children and their grandchildren, and their great children. 
Now notice this. If sin, if the sin of a parent can affect several generations, what does the Lord say about covenant families to the thousandth generation? Sin affects a few generations, but God's grace can affect a thousand generations. Good theology should catapult you to worship. Good theology is the foundation and the impetus for God-honoring worship in the covenant families of God. So it matters, parents, if you learn theology and pass it down to your kids. That should make you want to take a Grace Seminary class so that you can take the information, the theology that you learn, and share it with your kids and disciple them and teach them about the triune God that you serve. Okay, now let's talk about how how God's name is not Jehovah because that's what you all want to know, right? Keep talking, Pastor, but you've got to tell me what you mean when you say that God's name is not Jehovah. Where did the name Jehovah come from? For starters, let me say again that Jehovah is not God's name. It is not an, even an actual word or name. There's no character. There's no essence. There's no reputation attached to the name Jehovah because Jehovah is a made-up name. Yahweh, however, has character and essence and attributes and reputation attached to that. But Jehovah is just this made-up name that's only been around for about 500 years. It appears nowhere in the Bible. It's not even a real Hebrew word, and yet the hymn books of church history are littered with this name in many songs. Godly talented hymn writers and chorus writers since the time of the Reformation have sought to bring God glory by using the name Jehovah in their songs, but they used a term, a name that has no meaning, that was never ever used by the people of God. It was never used in ancient Israel. They had never heard of it, and it certainly was never mentioned at Mount Sinai. The Hebrew language in ancient times did not have vowels. Okay? It was all consonants. Now, of course, there were vowels inherent in the spoken words, but when written out, all you would see if you read a copy of the Hebrew Bible is all you would see is consonants. And now you may be thinking that would be really hard to read, just a bunch of consonants, but they were used to this. In fact, you can probably read this sentence right here that I've taken the vowels out of. The first part of Deuteronomy 6.5. Can you read that? What does that say? Look at that. See, you can read Hebrew probably already. Hebrew would be easy for you. It goes right to left. They've, there's vowels there now. You read it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. No vowels there. In order to read this sentence, you had to rely upon your knowledge of the English language and your knowledge of the Bible, and you were able to supply the necessary vows in that phrase there. When Moses and Joshua and Jesus and Paul read the Hebrew Bible, they read a Bible that just had consonants. They had a consonantal text, and they provided the vows when they read based on their knowledge of God's Word, just like you did. When they read that in Hebrew, that's what they saw. 
and they provided the vows based on their knowledge of God's word. Now you fast forward to the 7th century AD and the Hebrew language as a spoken language was dying off. The oral tradition of pronouncing the consonantal text was slipping away. For, for years, people had read the Hebrew Bible that had no vowels because they supplied the vowels because they knew the language. But the 7th century, by the time it rolls around, the oral preservation of the Hebrew language was in danger of becoming extinct. People were forgetting how to pronounce Hebrew words. So a group of Jewish scholars called the Masoretes developed this elaborate system of vowel notation called pointing. This pointing or this vowel system was designed to preserve the oral uh, spoken system of vowels that were in the text. So here's part of Deuteronomy 6 5 You shall love Yahweh your God in Hebrew with and without the vowels. Okay, never mind the red and the green there. That was uh, PowerPoint telling us that something's wrong with the grammar there. Yeah, Hebrew, it always does that. Okay, you see on the top part there, what you have is you have, this was the consonantal text in Hebrew. That if you were an ancient Israelite, if you were Paul, if you were Jesus, you would open up the Hebrew Bible and reading from right to left, you would have seen, you shall love or you must love Yahweh, your God. Yahweh is the third one from the right. You must love or you shall love Yahweh, your God. Now, by the time of the 7th century, the Masoretic scribes come along and they say, we've got to preserve this oral pronunciation, so let's come up with these little dots and points and things and their vowels that will help us remember in the future how to say, you shall love Yahweh, your God. And so that's what all those little points and things are. So in Hebrew, you really, you read up and down and in and around. It's right to left, but it's up and down and in and around as well. But you guys read earlier, so you would ace this Hebrew. The Masoretic scribes developed this system of vowel points to help people to be able to read Hebrew and to preserve the oral pronunciation. But what they did not want anyone to do is to speak that name, Yahweh. For centuries, people had said the name Yahweh in worship. The Psalms are full of the use of Yahweh in worship. But over time, the Jews quit saying the name Yahweh. They were afraid of going into exile one more time. They thought, we shall not take the Lord our God's name in vain, so let's not even say his name so that we don't break the commandment. By the time of the New Testament, only the high priest would say the name Yahweh. And he only did it once a year on the Day of Atonement when he went into the presence of the Holy of Holies. So the most important name in all of the Hebrew Bible, which was used in prayers and songs for years, which was pronounced by God's people, they would sing in the synagogue all these songs talking about Yahweh, eventually was never pronounced. When Hebrew readers saw the name Yahweh in Hebrew, they would say Adonai which, as we saw in Psalm 8, means my Lord or my Master. So when they read that, they would say, you shall love or you must love Adonai, your God. Even though they knew it said Yahweh, they did not want to say Yahweh, so they started saying Adonai. They were afraid of taking God's name in vain, so when they read Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible, they would say Adonai instead of Yahweh. In fact, to make sure that no one ever said the name Yahweh again, the Masoretic scribes took the vowels 
that are in the word Adonai, which means my Lord or my master, and they put them into the consonants of the name Yahweh, which in Hebrew is the letters Y-H-W-H. Okay? So they took the vowels out of Adonai that they were used to saying when they saw the word Yahweh, and they plugged those vowels into the name Yahweh because they said, we don't want anybody ever to say this name. So when they read it, they say, what word is that? Oh, that's telling me I need to say Adonai and not say Yahweh. By the time of the Reformation, 15th and 16th centuries, scholars begin studying and learning Hebrew again. And around 1520, a man named Galatius is reading the Hebrew Bible with the vowel points, just like that, that the Masoretic scribes had put in there. He sees the name Yahweh in Hebrew, but he doesn't know that the vowels inside of Yahweh are actually the vowels from the word Adonai. So he reads it and says, Yehovah. It would be like this. Imagine if you took the vowels out of my name and added them to the consonants in Pastor James's name. This is what you would get. You take the J-M-S out of James, the E-I out of Benji, and you get Jemis. Okay, James is not here today. He's with the junior high on camp. When he comes back, everybody call him Jemis. He will not know what's going on. This is exactly what happened. The Masoretes took the vowels out of Adonai and put them into the Hebrew Yahweh, the four consonants in Yahweh, to keep people from saying God's name. The vowels of Adonai in Hebrew are E, O, and A. It's a short E, even though it looks like an A. So here's how it would look in English when you add the vowels of the word Adonai with the consonants Yahweh. There's Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, plus those vowels of Adonai, you put them together and you get Yehovah. A side note here, the Germans in the Reformation, they sound their J as a Y and they sound their W as a V. So when they read this, they came up with Yehovah. But since we're redneck English speakers... We pronounce the J and we get the name Jehovah. Jehovah is simply a hybrid of the vowels of the Hebrew word Adonai, my Lord, my master, and the consonants of the name Yahweh. So Jehovah is not God's name. His name is Yahweh. So what do you do if you've called God by some made-up name? What do you do if you've written a song or sung a song and called him Jehovah? There's grace. There's been 500 years of grace because God's been listening to his people call him Jehovah for over 500 years now. If you've called called God Jehovah or taught a Sunday school lesson and talked about Jehovah Jireh, which in Hebrew is Yahweh Yireh, there's grace. Before seminary, I thought God's name was Jehovah. You read it in the books, you read pastors and preachers and scholars talking about Jehovah, but I learned from my Old Testament professors that Jehovah is not his name. You see, we're all learning and growing as disciples. As a matter of fact, in the bookstore at the pastor's conference, I saw a book about the names of God, a children's book, and there I had to look. I knew where I was going this Sunday, open it up, and right there in the table of contents, Jehovah listed in the names of God on the back Men that I respect, pastors and scholars that I respect, signed off saying this is a great book. And it is. They still need to learn 
and grow in their understanding that God's name is not Jehovah, that it is Yahweh. So if it slips into one of our songs and we forget to switch it out with something like Yahweh or something else, extend grace to the worship leaders. Don't run up to them after the service and say, Jehovah's not God's name. (laughs) Extend grace. But worship leaders, please don't use it in our songs. I will be emailing you (laughs) and ask you if you heard this sermon. If you haven't, well, we'll go from there. Sunday school teachers, if you see it in a book or a curriculum or a lesson book, switch out the name Jehovah with Yahweh. I have learned from one of my professors at DTS, Dr. Ron Allen, and his passion for this. I mean, he came unglued in class. And his passion, I caught. He says this, I have no more patience with current hymn and chorus writers who continue to use a word which is clearly not God's name. If you had made the mistake with my name after a while, I would say something about the funny error and ask you to use Ron or Allen. As for the word Jehovah, Enough is enough. It is a mistake that has been around for nearly 500 years. It is about time we got on a first name basis with the Lord of glory. His name is Yahweh. Remember what we learned two weeks ago? Good theology doesn't just happen. It takes work, study. That's what just happened here. Good theology just happened here because we walk through the text and walk through church history. We learned about God's name and we learned about his character, just like Moses. What does Moses do after hearing the name Yahweh and being reminded of his character and his attributes, that he's a merciful, forgiving God, has steadfast love? Moses falls on his face and he worships. He is so overwhelmed at the grace of God. That he worships. Good theology should catapult you to worship. You see, that's what Paul does in Romans 12. After three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, talking about God's sovereign election of the people that he saves, that he chooses who he will save. It's his sovereign choice. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. After Paul elevates the mercy of a holy God, choosing to save some people and choosing to send others to eternal damnation. After Paul comes to grips with God's mercy to him and his life, what does he say in Romans 12:1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, Paul is saying, if you're born again, it's only because of God's sovereign election and choice of you. It is only because of his mercy. Therefore, in light of God's mercy to you and saving you when you could not save yourself, What's the appropriate response? Worship. And that's exactly what Moses does after hearing the name of Yahweh. After Israel has blown it and he pleads for God to spare them. And God reminds him of his character and his attributes. He hears that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is merciful, forgiving, slow to anger, keeping covenant, keeping steadfast love with his people. He keeps steadfast love with his people. And when Moses hears that on the tail end of Israel, blowing it, 
What does he do? He falls on his face and he worships. He's so overwhelmed at the grace of God that he worships. Good theology should catapult you to worship. Moses went as a mediator and pleaded before God to spare Israel and to spare Aaron. How much more does the voice of our great mediator, Jesus Christ, cry out to God through his life, death, and resurrection? And how much more are we spared? As Richard Sibbs, one of the Puritans, said, Shall our sins discourage us when Jesus appears there only for sinners? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Never fear to go to God since we have a mediator with him who is not only our friend, but our brother and our husband. Listen, Grace, we have a mediator with Yahweh, with the triune God with the holy God of the universe, and his name is Jesus. If you're here today, and Jesus is not your treasure, you've never repented of your sins and trusted in him, you have a mediator. Jesus lived the life that you could never live. He died the death that you deserved because you turned away from him. God raised him from the dead. He's ascended as king of kings and lord of lords, and he's coming again one day to make the earth new and set up his kingdom. He's going to come and judge the living and the dead. You can have a mediator now and a mediator on that day if you repent and believe. And if you're a Christian and you're a disciple, you've already got the mediator. I know you blew it last week. I know you yelled at your wife. I know you yelled at your kids. I know some of you statistically looked at pornography. I know some of you worried I know some of you walked around smug and righteous thinking you have it all together and everyone else is a sinner. We have a mediator for every single one of us. And you can come to him today because he keeps steadfast love. He keeps covenant with his people because he is merciful and he is gracious. Let me read Exodus 34, 5-8 one more time. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Moses heard that God forgives sinners. And he quickly put his face to the earth and worshiped. I think it would be a good idea for us to do the same. So what I'm going to ask you to do is if you're able to get on your knees, turn around in the pew, get out in the aisles, come down to the front, and if you're able, get on your face as we sing this last song and be overwhelmed and be flabbergasted 
that God forgives a sinner like you because of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace. Oh God, we turn away all the time from you. And yet because of Jesus, you welcome us. We should not be discouraged by our sins. We know our sins. We hate them. We are discouraged, but we're not so discouraged that we don't come to you because you are the answer. How great you are, oh God, seated in the heavens, and yet you have condescended to us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And you are merciful and gracious and forgiving. You keep steadfast love for thousands of generations, God. You are amazing. There is no one like you. We don't hide from you this morning, God. We get on our knees because we respect you, we fear you, and we bask in the glories of the gospel that you continually wash us with the blood of your Son. And you empower us with your Spirit. May you get great glory, Father, once again as we sing about how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen.